Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Black Lawyers Podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing professor, author, and activist, Dr. Cornell West. Looking for the latest Black legal news, Black event, Black empowerment merch, or even a Black lawyer? Then look no further. TheBlackLawyers.com is your one-stop shop for all your legal needs and Black community resources. Check us out today. Again, theblacklawyers.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Black Lawyers Podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing the Dr. Cornell West. Hi, Dr. Cornell West. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, you honor me by being kind enough to have me, my dear sister, (laughs) Jay Carter from Washington, D.C. Yes, yes, yes. So our our listeners or the people that are watching this interview know that we start every episode uh, with legal hot topics in the news. Um, And because you are... um, You are an amazing professor, philosopher, politician, all all of the above. We would definitely love to hear your feedback on some of the trending news stories that are going on. So the first topic up is reparations. Um, There's been a revisit of the reparations conversation, particularly in the state of California, where it appears that that's where if it's going to happen first, it probably will happen there first. Um, for our viewers that don't really understand what reparations are, can you tell them a little bit about what the general concept of that is and are you for it or against it? Oh, well, I'm very much for it. I've been part of the reparations movement for almost 45 years, going back to Queen Mother Moore, who was the mayor of Harlem, where I still live on 110th Street. But of course, there's a great Randall Robinson, let us never forget him, his classic text, The Debt. And then Charles Ogletree, let us never forget him. He was one of the great lawyers fighting it. In Trans-Africa, we used to meet every other month at, uh, reflecting on how we could promote reparations because reparations is fundamentally about truth and justice and the condition of truth to allow suffering to speak. So we say, let's find the truth. What was the contribution of Black folk economically and otherwise to the making and the maintenance of American democracy? And we discover levels of barbarity, levels of violence, levels of coercion, but also levels of economic exploitation, free labor. And so the question becomes, let's pursue empirically what the truth is in terms of the damage done, the exploitation that was made, and then following tort law, what kind of damage vis-a-vis the truths that we discover. And so for me, reparations is never just a matter of some kind of fringe issue. Anybody interested in a fundamental quest for truth and justice about America has to come to terms with the damage done to black people economically and otherwise, and then the the justice that's required in terms of some kind of um, reparations, some kind of restitution. Now we know you can never bring the bodies back, those bodies at the bottom of the, Atlantic Ocean, that city of bones, that the great, that the great, uh, a great playwright uh, in, in, mm-hmm. in his 10, 10 play cycle. You know who I'm talking about? Towering, towering figure that uh, that city of bones that ain't Astor was talking about. You see that uh, you can't. You, you, there's no money that can bring that back. No way. No way. 
no money can ever bring back the uh, you know the the bodies that were lynched and so forth. But at least there ought to be some kind of concrete policy. So I'm very much for it, and I salute Adolfo with this event and Antonio who've been very much pushing this issue. I salute other coaches, essay that's played a very important role in helping repopularize the essay. But to Raymond Browns and others who've been at it for a long, long, long time, you see, they. Uh, and then the lawyers. I mean, good God, you all. Yeah. <laughs> we just yeah. had a Reba. We just had a Reba Martin, a CNN attorney, a, a legal analyst. She is definitely one of the lawyers leading it in in California, the reparations movement in California. Mm -hmm. So she was giving me a little bit more information in the interview I did with her a couple of weeks about it. Yeah. But I love what you said that there's no amount of money that's going to bring those bodies back. I do think um, karma is coming back in a different form. That's a conversation for another time. Ooh, that has nothing to do, yeah. has nothing that, to do with that. financial. I think I think people are suffering just in different ways, not necessarily financial. But um, in terms of the financial aspect, and then we'll move on to the second topic. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on this. What about the argument that, well, how can you give out a payment to, you know, whatever, the African-American people that are here now when how do you really define who an African-American is? Because you have so many people that are mixed and, you know, do you base it on do they identify as black or maybe their right. registration card? Like what what would you go by? Because I just feel like at this point, no black American is 100 percent black. Right. So right. I'm just wondering how would they even. I don't know. How would they even what are your thoughts on how they, would how they go about you should receive it? Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, one, I mean, when you bring together, I was thinking August Wilson, on the one hand, the great playwright, I was thinking people like William Darty, who's been thinking about this thing for 40 years, one of the most sophisticated economic minds in the country, and, and others, that certainly it would it'd have to be tied to people who were descendants of uh, uh, enslaved Africans. There's no doubt about that. But you're right. There's so much hybridity. There's so much uh, mixed uh, 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 relations and, and and so forth, uh, but 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 as long as you have some lineage, I would think. But I don't, I'm not definitive about this. If we can pursue the principle, acknowledge mm -hmm. the crucial financial dimension of it, and then mm -hmm. begin to come up with some criteria loosely tied to descendants of slavery in the United States, then I think we're on to something. I think I think we could probably deal with some of the looser ends of this because mm -hmm. you're right. The reality is always much more complex than any theory. And that's just that's mm -hmm. just the way the world is, very much so. But we've got to establish the commitment to truth and justice. The problem with America always is, as the boy says in his great essay, not the souls of black folks, souls of white folk of 1920, where he says America has been predicated on the efficacy of lives. That's mm -hmm. why the criminal justice system so often ends up excessively criminalizing us because it, white supremacy is a lie and white supremacy is shot through the system and mm -hmm. they think that they can sustain themselves based on the efficacy of life. Once we establish some kind of resistance to that notion of living on lives, then I think we can work out who, who the payments would go to. Right. <laughs> we work out the mechanics after, after we establish that we'll actually do it. I, I hear you on that. One, one step in front of the other. I, Lord, I hear you Lord, on yeah. that. Now, you are a, a world-renowned philosopher, professor at some of the top institutions. I mean, you went to Harvard, you went to Princeton. I know you you know everything about education and, 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 and its systems and its impact on, you know, 
people essentially from schoolhood all the way up to being adults and just like the importance of the sort of education someone should receive. I think you are the poster child for that, if anything. So tell us, what are your thoughts about DeSantis, Governor DeSantis in Florida? If you're listening, you don't know a lot about him. He is a very conservative um, <clears throat> governor who's also running for president, similar to how Dr. Cornell West is running for president. He's running for president for the, obviously, the, right now, the Republican nomination. And uh, there, there's some policy, a lot of policies that a lot of people don't agree with. But the most recent one, he's taking everything out of, uh, you know, public schools in 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 Florida that has anything to do um with like critical race theory. So if it could be even tangentially tied to critical race theory, it, it won't be in the school book. So there are things that have been taking out about parts of slavery, like the true parts of slavery or the true parts of anything dealing with race relations and things, um, not just with Blacks, but Black Americans, obviously that that's the main category, but it's even affecting Greek sororities, clubs, organizations that promote um, diversity and inclusion. Um, so he's doing like this, almost like a, a white, it's almost like he's trying to wipe away a certain part of history as it relates to diversity and inclusion or critical race theory so that he can create a new narrative, um, at least in the state of Florida. And, and obviously that that's frightful enough if he became president. I think he would try to do it across the board as well with that as well. What are your thoughts on just these recent actions he's taken in Florida, especially from the perspective of being a, a professor? Mm -hmm. Well, one is, uh, you remember Backlash Blues by the great Nina Simone, that uh, Santos is trying to ride a tide of a vicious white backlash given the response to the public lynching of Brother George Floyd Junior, that was a moment in which it looked as if America was once again going to have a, a reckoning about its white supremacist past and present. It looked as if there would be some critical reflection that would move us toward the truth about America in relation to its hatred, terror, and trauma vis-a-vis -vis Black people. Then you got a backlash, and he's a politician. He's checking what the tide looks like, and he's trying to ride the tide and he attacks Sister Kimberly Crenshaw and others who are the magnificent inaugurators of critical race theory. I was blessed to write the foreword to the book when it came out 30 years ago. And all we were trying to do is say, we want to tell the truth about America. What does America look like through the lens of enslaved Jim Crow, Jane Crow, discriminated, degraded, precious black folk? And America looks very different through that lens than it does the lens that he wants to look at. So he wants, he is primarily white, a constituency to feel good about the text that they read so that he has a whitewash the truth especially about black folk but it's indigenous peoples too mm -hmm. so they so that the young people can feel good we're educated it's not about feeling good the truth is not about feeling good the truth is painful for anybody everybody you see now keep in mind i mean america has never really told the truth about its past. So it's not as if even before the backlash, the schools mm -hmm. were really telling the truth. Mm -hmm. But he wants to white whitewash even some of the truths that were beginning to be told. Mm -hmm. and, that's, and that's just a typical right-wing, uh, 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 fallacious, uh, tendentious, meretricious uh, response. Now, 
I, I, I did write a piece in which I noted that DeSantis was eliminating SAT. I, I've been a part of a group to eliminate SAT for a long time. I just don't like it. I think it doesn't measure anything for the most part. And they were going to replace it with a, 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 with a test that talked about classical works from Plato to Tony Morrison, from Socrates to James Ball. I've always been a part of that. And so when he eliminated SAT, I said, oh, OK, I got about a one percent agreement with it. I'm glad he eliminated SAT. But of course, that goes right along with his deeply uh, white supremacist project of trying to ensure that white students don't have to deal with divisive notions. Now, how are you going to have education and not deal with divisive notions? It's impossible. Hmm. You got, we got divisive notions inside of ourselves let alone in our society. You can't tell the story of any society without talking about the various clashes and conflicts and tensions and incongruities and contradictions and so forth. So that he's, uh, uh, you know, he's a sad case of someone trying to weaponize fears and take it to the educational system. And he has to be opposed. Do you think he's also, it's interesting you said he's riding the wave. So you think some of this is like, I'm going to get attention for this. Like this is going to make me, especially because I'm running for president, this is definitely going to make me stand out because I'm taking such an extreme stance. Because they say that about Trump too. Some people don't even believe that Trump believes half the stuff that he says, but it's almost like he says it and he gets on board with it because he knows that it's going to bring a level of attention or it's going to get a certain sector to get on his side that's, if he says the exactly. things that they want them to say. That's, that's exactly but, but But there's different gradations of it. See, Trump himself is a bona fide gangster all the way down. So he'll say anything, anything. Uh, uh, somebody like DeSantis is probably a gangster about 55, 60% of the time. <laughs> there are a few things he's got convictions about. You know, he's serious Catholic and so forth. Trying right. to be a Catholic on Monday, Presbyterian on Wednesday, Presbyterian Pentecostal on Friday, and a dead up heathen on the weekend. Because I mean, right. that's just yeah, all the way. And that's he's always been like that. But he's right. very honest. About it. Yeah, he's at least he's honest. honest. You know who he is, right? He's yeah, never he changed. Said, Y'all yeah. who I am? Thirty-eight thousand lies in four years. I got fifty-five thousand coming. But that's just who he is, and it's sad mm-hmm. that uh, American people are so frustrated. And, and desperate that a significant slice will hold on to him no matter what. But mm-hmm. DeSantis was trying to displace Trump. And so he yeah. figured, well, I've got to be extremely in the same way that you know. And it's true for some of the other uh, right wing candidates in the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that and, definitely makes sense. Well, we want to shift towards thank you for playing our, our round of hot topics. Uh, we appreciate your input on that. That's that we're, I'm sure people are taking notes on what you say. You, I feel like every sentence you give me has so many, so many jewels. And this is this is why you are. Who Ooh, you are. You're so kind. You're so kind. <laughs> so just for more. Um, so our interviews are a little special because we don't ask just like the typical questions. We try to get to know the person beyond what, you know, a Google search would find. I'm sure people mm. Google your name, certain you know, buzzwords and things come up. So my first question is, who was Dr. West before becoming a professor, a political activist, a philosopher? Who were you before all of this? Oh, my mama's child and my daddy's kid, Irene B. West, Clifton West, straight out of Tulsa, Oklahoma and Orange, Texas, and then on to Chocolate Side of Sacramento and Shallow Baptist Church with my pastor, Willie P. Cook, and Deacon Hinton and Sarah Ray, my vacation Bible school teacher. 
that's basically who I am. I'm very much West family, Shiloh mm-hmm. Baptist Church, Black Panther parties right down the street. Work very closely with them. They've been formative in my life in that sense. And I've all, I, and I'll always be that, you know, that no matter what education and no matter what context, my calling is still the same, trying to be honest, tell the truth, seek justice and focus on the least of these, the folk who catching the most hell, the wretched of the earth, the friends for now talked about with such insight. And, uh, um, and somebody who just, you know, listened to the dramatics every two days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> now, you, you know, you say you are who you are still at the core. You're still that, that young boy from um, Oklahoma. Can you tell us at what point, you know, what was the turning point? Was it high school or college when you knew you were going down kind of this path of, okay, I definitely know I want to be a political activist. I know I want to maybe teach. Like at what point, you know, did you say, okay, I'm going to start going down these paths? When did you know you were going to kind of become who you are? Ooh, that's a wonderful question. I think in many ways, because I, I I grew up thinking I was going to be the next James Brown, the next Willie Mays, you know, the <laughs> next you Marvin can sing? Yeah, like, Oh, I sound like Marvin Gaye in the shower. Now. <laughs> get, get, get on stage, that's a different thing. Even though in Sacramento, we just sang some What's Going On with my brother and Dejan. Clifton and Dejan had a good time and I was in Mississippi this week this past weekend, you know, with the Preston Jenkins and Parker's brother and their family uh, dealing with some of this vicious ugliness and it has some beautiful, beautiful music. We all got a chance to sing together. But no, I think for me, it was, it was the death of Brother Mark. Um, how old big, were you? I was 14 years old, running track. I'll never forget it was the day uh, we run against Sack High. I went to Kennedy High. And, and just hit me so hard. What am I going to do with my life? What kind of calling? What kind of vocation would I have? How do you deal with the legacy when you come from such a great black people as you and I do? That you know the standards are so high, sister. Like this brother here, you know, John Coltrane. I mean, when the standards are so high, Aretha and Charles P. Howard, the founder of the Negro Bar Association with Gertrude Rush, you know, these people had levels of integrity, honesty, decency, courage that uh, lure us and keep us true to ourselves. Charles Hamilton Houston would be another example. Thurgood Marsh would be another. Constant Motley would be another. The standards are so high. And it hit me when Martin died that uh, I said, dang, we've got to hold up this bloodstained banner. And what we did immediately was we shut down all the high schools. Mm. Next week, make sure Black Studies is in high schools across Sacramento. That was the first kind of act not just a protest, but organizing. And we pulled it off and we did institute it actually to help us with the great Sinclair Drake, probably one of the greatest sociologists of the 20th century alongside Du Bois and others. So it was really 14. And so now, uh, what, is, what is it now? 60, no, 56 years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am. Uh, last week, we celebrated the 60th uh, anniversary of the March on Washington, and I was able to attend an intimate panel with his daughter, uh, Dr. Bernice King. Who, yeah, that was uh, went, to, mm-hmm, yeah. went, to, went to law school. She went to Emory Law, and I introduced myself. And, wow. you know, one of the things she said was, um, first of all, you feel uh Dr. King's presence when you talk to her. Strangest thing. As young as I am, I could feel his presence. And when you talk to her, one of the things she said in her panel, she said, um, people are always asking me, you know, so what's your legacy going to be? You know, what's your legacy? You know, you're from the Kings. What's your legacy? She said, I was born into a legacy. 
I was born into, I didn't ask for this, you know, but she said, but I do think my legacy is to continue on with my parents' sacrifice. She said, people ask me all the time, would I change, you know, him being, you know, him being murdered or anything? She said, I wouldn't change. She said, I wouldn't change what happened to my father because by him, by what happened to him, we wouldn't have a Dr. Cornel West. We wouldn't have, there's so many things that happened after his assassination that set off the rest of history where we are today. And we still have a long way to go. But I think her point was, I think he, I mean, he even always said that he didn't think he was going to see the other side. He would hope his children would see the other side. But he had a feeling that he would not, he would not see it. Um, and so I thought that was a very beautiful thing, thing, thing that, that, that she said, that she said for sure. And I think for me though it's like my sister carter you were also born in the great legacy your mama your daddy your grandparents your aunts your uncles they had levels of dignity spiritual nobility uh, willingness to love tell the truth to shape you and all of your loved ones and so forth see that legacy of black love black joy black freedom in the face of hatred and terror and trauma is one that affects all of us now it's always good and bad mixed in because we're human beings you know brother martin at bad as well as good. He wasn't a, he wasn't a deity or a God. He was a human being who chose moral greatness, who chose spiritual greatness. And that's what I mean by the high standards. But you can be a musician, a poet, you can be a sanitation worker, you can be a professor, you could be a beauty sister in the beauty salon or a barbershop. There's ways in which moral and spiritual greatness are always available to people who are willing to tell the truth, seek justice, and treat people right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, you speaking of schools, you you have got you got you got into you taught at some of the top institutions in the world, and obviously they're right here in the U.S. What were your favorite classes at uh, Harvard and Princeton when you were there? Oh, that's a good question. I was blessed to meet W. Du Bois's second wife, Shirley Graham, who was quite a revolutionary in some ways, even more than him, pushed him even more to the left. But uh, she taught uh, at Harvard under the great uh, uh, Guineer, Hewitt Guineer, Lonnie Guineer's father, the great Lonnie Guineer, just died, first black woman professor at Harvard Law. But that was memorable. But there was Martin Kilson, Preston Williams, Soxide too with Samuel Beer, Israel Sheffler's course on pragmatism, Roderick, Roderick, first course on ethics. I just, every class I was in, I had a good time. I <laughs> like going to the Apollo, you know, who, who, who are you going to like more? Is it Marvin? Is it the Temptations? It's going to be Stevie Wonder. Well, you love all of them. Gladys Knight, you love all of them. Well, I loved all my classes, my Hebrew classes that I took, my Aramaic classes, my Greek classes. I just had a good time. I really did. Mm hmm well, here on the podcast, and I'm sure my viewers are tired of me saying it, but I'm going to say it until the statistic change. Less than 5% of um, U.S. attorneys are, are Black, and less than 2.5% are Black women. So typically in our spaces, mm -hmm. if you're an attorney or a lawyer or a law student, you are coming in a space where it, you are one of very few or you're the only one. So my assumption is you're going to Harvard and Princeton during the times that you went. There were not that many of people that look like you in those spaces. Is there a particular time that you account where you felt like you were facing some form of discrimination and how did you handle it? Well, it's very interesting. You know, I think of my roommate like Robert Gerard, love very deeply roommate like Neil Brown, both became 
lawyers and we would always reflect on what we were up against. You know, I was thinking Brother Malik Shabazz and Trent Wright dealing with the court, with the case down to Mississippi, black lawyers, what, what they had to go against. So it's always not just me. I'm just a little small wave in an ocean. But probably my, my worst experience was one of the first classes at Princeton when the philosopher, philosopher professor walked in and said, this class is for rational beings only. Then they look at me. Hmm, interesting. I said, I said, oh, no, that's fine. I don't know. This is for rational beings only. I said, oh, Lord, that other white supremacist here. It hmm. does. I just sat there quiet and didn't say nothing. So then he said, well, we're going to start right off asking uh, who wants to uh, give the first presentation on Frege's sense and reference. I raised my hand right away. I was the only one. He looked at me. Shoot, did, I he came let, back did, he, did, you, did he let you give the presentation? Came back that second weekend, put a smile on Tony Morrison and James Brown's face simultaneously, let alone mama and daddy. <laughs> you know when you got to throw down, Sister Carter. But I wasn't throwing down for the white folks. See, I was throwing down for my, my high standards that are produ the people who produced me. See what I mean? I'm, I'm never trying to persuade some white normative gaze. I know I know what that gaze is, right. but I'm going to hold up the bloodstained banner of the tradition that shaped me. Raymond Pace Alexander. I mean, you got we got some of the most brilliant legal minds to come down the pike. You see, and intellectuals as well, musicians as well, painters as well. Hmm. Now, if you had become who you were, like a political activist, professor, all these things. What other maybe path would you have gone down? What else interests you that maybe the audience wouldn't know about you? That's a good question. What well, for Jesus, I'd probably be in jail for a long time. I go to jail all the time, <laughs> but I go to jail based on choice for struggle for, ju for justice. But no, because I, I I grew up pretty uh, thuggish in terms of my treatment. I had Robin Robin uh, Hood sensibility. I want to make sure everybody had something. I went to all black schools. Camellia and Wilsey Wood and so forth. Kennedy was integrated to high school. But I just wanted to make everybody, make sure everybody had something. So I'd get in fights all the time, take people's food and had extra food to give it to folks didn't have nothing. And so I got kicked out of school. No school would take me for a few months when I refused to salute the flag. So I probably would have certainly been in prison for a long time. I may end up in prison. You never know. Nothing but the Lord holding me together. But, uh, uh, but in addition to that, I guess if I had learned how to play the piano, mm -hmm. and I started for a while, if I learned how to play the piano, whoo, Mary Lou Williams, Duke Ellington, Count Basin, McCoy Tyner, Jerry Allen, oh, Lord have mercy. I'd be playing the piano right now in Mike's basement after dark, every Thursday and Friday and Saturday night, having the time of my life. But, my, but my, my mom made, my mom made me learn how to play three instruments and I three, which one, which ones was it? which ones the piano the flute and the violin mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. you still play all three of them right now um I can probably still play the violin because that's the one I played the longest I actually was a part of the DC youth orchestra so I performed at the Kennedy Center stage and everything when I was younger I sometimes look back at those photos and it seems like a different wow. lifetime. That's but music it. is music. I love music as well. Music is it's very so much a part. I mean, I did play classical violin myself. I was first violin, but that was high school. Mm -hmm. That was just, then I stopped. 
but uh, but music is constitutive. It's not ornamental or decorative. You know, it's mm-hmm. not an add-on. It mm-hmm. sits at the center of who we are, especially Black folk. Because yes, yes. I feel like a lot of our, our move, a lot of our movements have been pushed and 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 spread through through the music, especially in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Even even now, a lot of the music you listen to, it, it will reflect the times you're in. So that's why we should be careful who who we're popularizing in the music because our, our children are listening to it. It gets in your soul, it gets in your spirit, it's how you how you think. Um exactly. very impactful. I, mean, sure. I was blessed to write a song with a genius named Bootsy Collins on his album, Funk Capital of the World. We call it Freedom, F-R-E-E-D-U-M. Mm-hmm. When you, if you're free to dumb down the music, you're free to dumb down your life. You have to be mm-hmm. able to recognize freedom has a bird, takes strength to be free. Mm-hmm. If you just be licentious, then that's not mature. Freedom is something that is a choice based on a maturity that allows you to recognize that that freedom goes hand in hand with the dignity, hand in hand with the decency, hand in hand with an integrity. And that's something we all aspire to. We all fail, you know, but we got to get up and keep moving. We got to bounce back. Well, I always say freedom is not free. So. Oh, that's it. That's it. <laughs> that's that's it. one of my one of my favorite phrases. Ooh, I think now, is that you? Is that Nina Simone? Or is that both of y'all? I don't know. I have to Google and give the right credit to who said that. But that's that's one of my mantras. I think that's in powerful. any field that you're in, I think it sums it up. Freedom is 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 not free. And I think my mom says it says it a lot she was a big government employee so she says oh you guys are walking around and you don't have a care in the world you don't know how much it takes for you to just walk around the united states and have certain freedoms you don't understand what's going on behind the scenes she always used to tell me that so she instilled that in me um wanted to switch gears really quickly getting mm-hmm. ready to ask you just a few questions to close out the interview about your your actual political campaign because i know you are running for president before I ask you uh, those few questions, how do you think we can have more, you know, more activists, more politicians running that are black? I mean, I think I've seen somewhat of an insurgence recently. Um, they don't always win, obviously. I mean, you've had candidates that, you know, try to run. And you have Stacey Abrams. She's tried to run a few times and she almost made it, but not quite. Um what, what do you think we should do in terms of getting more activists and politicians that are, are Black into the in the running? Well, one, we've got to make sure that the impediments and obstacles that are in the way need to be pushed out of the way. It's very, very important. Our anthem is what? Lift every voice. Not lift every echo, though. We don't need politicians who just echoes of silos. We mm-hmm. need politicians who like the musician. You got to find your voice. Like you on the piano, you got to Find your voice, right? That's distinctively Jay Carter. Politicians have to have the same kind of courage, same kind of internal spiritual struggle. And that means that they have to be willing to cut against the grain. They've got to be willing to speak the truth, not just the power, speak the truth to people who don't have a lot of power. Mm-hmm. Because the truth will set them free, just like the truth will set others free. And that's what we don't have enough of. You know, we got too many politicians on the gravy train and not on the freedom train, not on the love train. And that's all colors, but this is true right. for Black folk as well. 
But speaking of colors, you are part of the Green Party. Can you tell our audience, you know, a little bit more about the Green Party? And, you know, do you hope to see more people being open to this particular party? Just because I think when people think of politics, they really just think Republican, Democrat, maybe right. independent. So can you tell us a little more about the, the Green Party and why you've decided to run in that, that particular party? Well, one is just as someone lifting one's voice, I'm fundamentally committed to the least of these. So I look at America through the lens of those who are dealing with mass incarceration, those in the hoods, in the barrios, the reservations, working people. What is it, 63% of all American citizens live paycheck to paycheck, mm -hmm. richest nation in the history of the world. You got too much corporate greed at the top. Mm -hmm. And so the question becomes, well, where is that particular insight, vision, and analysis going to be promoted? Republican Party, no, they're moving toward neo-fascism. It's, it's sad. It's ugly. It's pathetic. It, it barbaric. The Democratic Party itself claims that it's concerned about poor and working people, but it's so tied to Wall Street. It's so tied to militarism abroad. And so when you look at Trump versus Biden, once again, you say, oh, my God, this is a laughing, makes America, the country a laughing stock. Trump pushing the country toward a second civil war, Biden pushing the country toward a third world war because we may end up with Russia and China uh, 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 at, at war with Russia and China and the Democrats. And they don't come through for me when it comes to poor and working people. And they certainly don't come through when it comes to black folk. Mm -hmm. They just don't. I mean, I, I, it's amazing for me to see the folk uh, so crazy about Biden. I don't mind people saying, well, we got to support Biden and tell the truth about it because he's better than Trump. But when, mm -hmm. they, when they start telling lies about Biden, like he's got this fundamental commitment to Black people. He's the architect of a whole system of barbarity called mass incarceration. Mm. Going back to 86, 89, 91, 94 crime bills, let alone elimination of welfare and so forth. But it's his militarism abroad that, uh, that that's dangerous. And I come out of legacy of Fannie Lou Hammond, Martin Luther King Jr. Four issues, poverty, militarism, racism, and materialism. See, that's spiritual. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you're into materialism, then when you get in the position of power and they dangle that status and money to you, you can mm -hmm. sell out too easily. Mm -hmm. That's what Martin was getting at, you see. So all four of those need to be highlighted. And so it's just for me, building on the legacy of Martin King, Fannie Lou Hamer, and others in electoral politics and now in presidential politics. And you can imagine, I catch a lot of help. You can be, hey, we don't need all this. Martin Luther King Jr. talk about poverty and militarism. We got a choice between Republicans and Democrats. That's it. There is no alternative, then there would be an alternative. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that folk locked into mass incarceration? Does that mean that folk locked into the hoods never, ever, 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 ever have a chance? Right. Right. Well, what are, speaking of which, what are the tenets of your platform? What will you say are your top three or four things? On your, on your presidential platform that people should know about you running in terms of what you're advocating for? Well, one, I'm an abolitionist like Frederick Douglass. He wanted the abolition of slavery. He didn't want a liberal version of slavery and a conservative version of slavery. Mm -hmm. Ida B. Wells didn't want a liberal version of Jim Crow and Jane Crow. She wanted to eliminate. I want to eliminate poverty. I want mm -hmm. to eliminate homelessness. I want strong, guaranteed jobs with a living wage. I want universal health care for everybody. I want free education. I want serious, serious regulation of the monopolies who have played a disproportionate role in shaping 
our economy, mm-hmm. and I want reparations for black people. And that's just beginning when it comes to domestic. I also want to come to terms with 800 military units around the world. You see, we don't have to be an empire to other nations prefer. We can be a decent nation among nations. That's what I'm concerned about. When the great Du Bois said, June 1945, he's leaving San Francisco after the founding of the United Nations. And he said, I can foresee a world war where America tries to strangle Asia, strangle Russia and suppress Asia because he knew that China and Russia would be emerging. And the question is, how do you create a world in which poor and working people around the world can be empowered without the need for high military weaponry buildup, which is tied to profiteering as well, vis-a-vis China, vis-a-vis Russia. And we can see now there is a good chance in the next few years that the United States could go to war with mm-hmm. both Russia, as was given what's going on in the Ukraine with NATO and so forth, and mm-hmm. with China, given what could possibly go on in Taiwan. So I take Du Bois's um, prophecy very, very seriously as part of the same legacy that we started this interview with. You see, we, uh, we Black folk got something to say about ourselves, the world, truth, reality, beauty, goodness, and the holy. I'm a Christian too, so, mm-hmm. so that uh, Jesus ain't no joke. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Ain't no joke at all. Jesus loving free Black man. That's how I describe, describe myself. I love that description. Well, one last question. One of the things that you talked about a lot is mass incarceration. Um, One of the things that I do pro bono on the side with the Black Lawyers Podcast, as you can imagine, I launched this podcast and I get a lot of people writing me about their cases. I'm innocent. I'm locked up. I didn't have a fair trial. I didn't have the right lawyer. And it just breaks my heart that there's so many people either in jail and innocent and didn't do it, or even if they did do a crime, um, they're being maybe overly punished. Um, And, um, you know, as you know, the United States, we have, you know, the most incarcerated people in the world. So the most incarcerated people in the world, um, we we have the highest percentage uh, right here in the United States. Um, So how do you, uh, I know one of the one of the reasons why a lot of times uh, brown and black folks are arrested is because of drug use. So what are your thoughts about continuing this path that some people have started in decriminalizing some of these these drug laws or maybe making them retroactive so that they're not so many they're not so many people locked up. I mean, they could be out here in society being productive, but instead they're wasting years, 10, 15, 20 years of their life just sitting in a cell. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I want to salute the work that you 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 do. I've been blessed teaching prison for 41 years. And I've seen the levels of barbarity of our precious brothers. They won't allow me to go on the woman's side, so many of the brothers, this portion black and brown. And uh, I think one of the things that has to be done is when we talk about the abolition of mass incarceration, we're talking about the fundamental transformation of a vicious prison system in which forms of torture like voluntary solitary confinement and what have you are too often used. We're talking about massive pardons. A wonderful book by my dear brother, Jesse Jackson Jr., who went to jail, as you recall, came out and wrote a powerful text talking about how do you go about pardoning the folk who have, were innocent, 
or many of whom went to jail based on nonviolent drug offenses, which are really not worthy of a jail time. It may have been a violation of law at that time, but not worthy of massive prison time. And so uh, there has to be a priority on fundamentally transforming how we treat those who break the law. Now, of course, I want to criminalize what the police do to too many young black folk and brown folk. But but that's that's different. Rape, murder, there's a whole host of crimes where you do, in fact, have to have some kind of placement, some kind of rehabilitation. I think we can learn from Finland and Sweden. I've been to those places and looked at those prison situations and they're qualitatively different and much more humane. People can change. People can be transformed. But as long as they're disproportionately black and brown, and we know that black and brown life has less value than a white life in America, past and present, mm -hmm. that we've got to at least raise our voices. We've got to at least try to tell the truth about that white supremacist legacy. And we do it by means of calling for fundamental transformation in prison systems in which there'd be massive pardon. Now, if I were to go to the White House, keep in mind, you know, I tell my beloved wife all the time, I, that I, I probably wouldn't even go to the White House until everybody had a house. I mean, that's what I learned at Shiloh Baptist Church. You know what I mean? <laughs> mm -hmm. now, I, I know you you live right around the corner. I'll probably be closer, closer where you are than in the White House. Because, because I mean, <laughs> I say to myself, look, I'm, I, I come, I'm an extension of people. People extension of me. I don't need to be in no big house so other folk don't have nowhere to live whatsoever. That's just a violation of conscience in a certain sense, you see. But even more uh, 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 more concrete than that, I think it's also a matter of the priorities. You use the bully pulpit. Mm -hmm. You say, you know what? We cannot be a decent nation if this poverty leads toward decrepit schools, indecent housing, low quality education, and then criminalize the folk by sending them to places warehousing all the brothers and sisters as if they're not precious human beings who didn't live under circumstances, who did live under circumstances that didn't facilitate their flowering. Now, personal responsibility is important. And I know our right conservative brothers and sisters always want to talk about personal responsibility. That's very true. That's very true. But you notice they didn't talk about that in regard to Wall Street. They had all the Wall Street gangsters in 2008, 2009. No, Democrats let them out, right? Obama and Biden. Let them not one went to jail. All that inside the trading market manipulation, fraudulent activity, predatory lending. Not one went to jail, but let LeBron Letitia get caught with some drugs. Boom, go straight. I can't live with that. I will refuse to live with that level of hypocrisy. You know what I mean? I understand. I understand. So fill in this blank. You should vote for me for president if you want serious quest for truth and justice that highlights poor and working people here and around the world well that's the answer you guys heard it heard it here first real time you know there's a chance that biden, <laughs> there's a chance neither biden nor trump gonna make it you know what i mean so we don't know i don't know who i'm going to be running against no, no, but we're we're rooting for you and 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 your and your second run for presidency. Uh, we end each episode with a Black Excellence Moment of the Week because there's 
so much bad news going on in the world. We we like to highlight some positive. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. So our Black Excellence Moment of the Week today is uh, Miss Natalie Florea Hudson. She was named Minnesota's first Black Supreme Court Chief Justice. So it's so funny when I hear the first Black, when, when you hear that in 2023, you're like, wow, the first, it took this long for them to get, and you know, and she's a Black female like that. So we salute you, uh, Justice Hudson, for that, 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 that historic achievement. Um, again, most most judges, most lawyers, most politicians and, and political advocates like Dr. Cornell, Dr. Cornell West, we are not we're not black. We're not brown. Usually these seats are being held by the white predominant race. So uh, we salute you on that on that on that uh, historic uh, achievement. And as always, we are rooting for everyone black. Take care, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Black Lawyers Podcast. This is your host, Jay Carter. Until next time, please follow us on all our social media handles at the Black Lawyers Podcast.